when you're working directly with an artist. And so your job as the co-writer is to be the architect of that person's song. And that means really listening, like really listening. Like the way that I start a co-write in that case always is I'll just be like, hey, what's going on? And as they're talking, I'm kind of typing what they're saying. And then that usually leads to a good song because I've taken kind of their emotional, how they're feeling that day. And I'm already thinking about how it can translate into a song idea. In that case, when you're writing with an artist specifically, once again, you have to kind of submerge your own ego because it's not about you. It's about making sure that that artist feels listened to. They feel like the song represents who they are. And so I think of it as being more the architect of the song, where, you know, if an artist says, I want to build a castle, your job as the co-writer is to be like, okay, how many turrets do you want? Like, I'm building our castle and I'm helping you build that castle. Welcome. I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In our last episode, we talked to Jonathan Jacobs, founder of Rockstars and a leader in the global philanthropy group at Hasbro. We learned about how discovering a passion for music gave him focus early in life and led him to a rich career through three different fields. First, touring the world as a live music engineer, then as a software developer and technologist, and finally into his current role in philanthropy. Today we stay with music. Our guest is, I'm not afraid to say, my favorite person in the world. Those of you who have listened to the podcast before know her as one of Boston's finest Americana singer-songwriters. That's right. My guest today is my wife, Susan Cattaneo. She, just like Jonathan, made two or three big transitions in her career. She started out with actually a very successful run in the television promotion arena, but then she dropped out to go back to college at Berkeley College of Music, where she ultimately became a professor of songwriting. And then, at an age where most people probably do not start a music career, she decided to become a performing and recording artist, and that's what she's been doing for the past 13 years. I have been very lucky and blessed to be her manager and to sit front and center through this run and to learn that actually there's a lot to learn. There are plenty of lessons that you can gather from any field you operate in by looking at somebody run a career in the arts and a career in teaching. And so we talk about those lessons in our conversation. And also we talk about what it means to start a business and work close with your spouse. What are the challenges, how you overcome those challenges, and in all honesty, what are all the benefits. Today's episode is all about Susan's career and what we can learn as leaders from that. But we will also have a special bonus episode coming up. We're actually going to go in depth into her new record, which dropped a couple of weeks ago. So. Enjoy the episode and stay tuned for the song at the end. So, Susan, welcome to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. How are you doing? Oh, my Dino, I'm very good. <laughs> I'm very excited to be on this amazing podcast that I've had the pleasure of seeing grow and become something really wonderful. And so I'm very excited to share this moment with you. 
we share so many moments together. (laughs) (laughs) That is very true. But I want to start out. So in our podcast, I talk about how to be better leaders, how to be true to yourself. And, you know, you have had actually a fascinating career. Not many people know about it. You've had essentially three careers, maybe entering to the fourth one. So why don't you start by giving my listeners, our listeners, a background of how you started, some key changes that you made through your career? So I was born and raised in New Jersey by a family of kind of musical people. And so we did a lot of singing around the dining room table. And my mom, I think, was one of the original kind of stage mothers. And she would rewrite the lyrics to familiar songs. And then we would actually perform them around town, (laughs) people's birthday parties and stuff. And so I actually made my first record that I cut with my family when I was five. But I'm the youngest of four. And I think kind of watching my sister, who is closest to me in age, she was the Broadway singer in the family and kind of watching her go through that whole process of going to New York and auditioning and kind of almost making it several times made me think, well, no, that's not for me. I I couldn't possibly have a music career. That's for her. And so for me, I was always kind of focused on the writing aspect of creativity. And I would sing on the side. And, you know, I did a lot of musical theater growing up. And in that forum, the alto part, which I'm the alto, is always the comic sidekick. The alto is never the lead. So for me, I think I kind of raised myself thinking about the fact that I was going to be the sidekick. You know, I was going to be the writer. I was going to be the musician on the side. And so that led me to a career where I wrote for television and I was a writer producer and I created movie trailers and TV commercials that promoted shows. And I sang in a band on the side. And that was kind of my first career. And I did that in New York for eight years. And it's so funny because for that band, you know, I was one of the co-lead singers and I, I wrote like three songs for that band. But the idea of like, combining writing and music. (laughs) I don't know why it never occurred to me, but it never occurred to me. But interestingly enough, that job being uh, in a kind of an advertising corporate setting. Yeah. And I'm going to stop you for a second because I want, I want people to realize Susan started as a receptionist at WPIX, which at the time was the number one independent station in the number one market in the country and made her way up from receptionist to director of on-air promotion she won a new york broadcasting award for one of the trailer that she made and she was nominated for an emmy yeah yeah and (laughs) so we're going to talk about your change of career but you were very accomplished by the time we moved to boston because i made a change for school and you were working for one of the top three or four probably at the time companies in the world that did like trailer promotion for television. Yes. I think you. we were part of the launch of the promos for CNBC Asia. You did work for the biography series on A&E, which in the mid-90s was a big thing. Yep. This interruption, part of our dynamic is you do have a tendency to underplay your accomplishments. <laughs> well, there, and that is true. I think what I was trying to get at skill-wise is that being in an advertising format like that, you very quickly learn that creativity is a fluid thing. 
So for example, you know, you would create a commercial and you have a client that you're responsible to responding to and you'd give the creative to the client. And then the client comes back with sometimes really arbitrary changes that have to be in there because they're the client. And so as a creative person, I learned very early on to kind of take my ego out of the picture and to be kind of working for the greater good. And when we moved to Boston, my brother-in-law, Dino's brother, was going to Berkeley and I had never heard of Berkeley before. And I thought, you know, should I quit my paying job and go to Berkeley and become a student again and get another degree? And we didn't have kids yet. And I, I realized that I kind of wanted to do that. I wanted to take the leap into trying this thing out, this music thing. So I actually went to Berkeley as a vocal vocal student, a vocal principal. And I took my first songwriting class and felt like the heavens opened up and the angels said, I was like, oh, like I suddenly was like, oh my God, music and words together. Oh my God, who would have thought? And I became like obsessed with songwriting. And I think because I had been in a corporate environment where I had a stable of writers that I was working with and where, you know, I was used to kind of the editing process, I <laughs> would take over the classes that I was in where I would start working with the students independently outside of class to help them get better in their songs. And luckily, my mentor at the time was not threatened by that and hired me as a teacher right after I graduated. And let's give credit to your mentor, Pat Patterson, who, yes. if anybody listening here is interested in learning about writing lyrics, Pat is probably one of the people that over the past 30 years have rethought and created really the discipline on how you create the process of lyric writing. And so yes. if you're interested in learning how to write lyrics, go and check out his course on Coursera and his wonderful books. And I'm actually contributed to the books as well. So if you want to follow some of my writing, it's in there as well, which is cool. Great. So I would take back for a question because some of our listeners are people who are, you know, looking for their true calling or pursuing their passion. Mm -hmm. Take me to the moment when you actually made the decision of taking this career in a, in a very competitive industry where you had gotten yourself to a place that many people would have envied because you came from being, you know, in the most important market in the country to an incredibly well-respected promotion agency doing work on very high visibility. You know, there's probably people here who may not realize that have seen your commercial if they were old enough to watch TV in the early 90s. Yeah. And, you know, you had already been nominated for a regional Emmy. You were on a path where... If you had pursued that career, a lot of the external rewards that people expect were probably available to you. What was the moment of saying, that's okay, I'm willing to step away from this? Hmm. And what was the driver? Well, so I think I would say there were kind of three, three things that were the, the propelling momentum for me. And the first being that, you know, I'd always had this side hustle, so to speak, of singing and doing music. And I think that 
it was always lurking in the back. It was always burning in the back. It was, you know, it had its embers. It never really died for me. So it was always there. And I think that that was something definitely that was in my background. I'm always looking for community and I'm always looking for community kind of in every place I go. And I thought that when I got to this level of proficiency in my, in my craft of television promotion, I thought it was going to be a bunch of us hanging out in a room, brainstorming and then brainstorming into the night and coming up with really cool creative and executing it all together in a team. And it turned out that it really was me in a room by myself writing for hours and hours and hours and hours. And it was not the kind of collaborative experience that I was looking for. It was very isolating and good. I mean, it was good, but I was finding that I was having some physical issues. So my back was bothering me. I had like a lot of kind of TMJ in my jaw. So there were some physical things that were going on that were saying this was not the right job for me. So that was the second thing. And then the third thing, which I know sounds really strange and odd, but it really was the... the kind of thing that pushed the the edge for me. I was walking down Prospect Street in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where we lived at the time. And I am not a religious person, but I was like, God, give me a sign. What should I do with my life? Should I stay with my paying job or should I quit and go back to to Berkeley and be a student? I need something. I need some sort of guidance. And I looked down and in between the slats of the cement sidewalk, there was something silver and shiny. And I picked it up and it was a single silver treble clef earring. I have to say, I know this is really weird, but that was all I needed. I was like, okay, I'm going to quit my job. Like, I think I was already nine tenths of the way there, but finding that earring felt like, Yeah, I mean, I couldn't have had a clearer sign. Having said that, I also believe that I was so ready to like start something new and quit my job that it it probably would have been like, if a bird flies over me at any point today, I should quit my job and go to Berkeley. So I definitely was looking for a change. I was feeling restless and I thought, you know, now is the time. We were financially able to do this. I have to say that that was an important and obviously a thing that that I was very lucky to have had that I know that other people aren't as fortunate to be able to switch careers like that. I did attend Berkeley on a vocal scholarship. So that also kind of helped make the decision for me. And then when you were at Berkeley, there were two, I'm cheating because I've been here for the you whole know story. The story. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, a, is this a leading question? Yes, it is. Go for uh, it. So you made the discovery of a new professional path that you didn't know at the time, which yes. was the staff songwriter. Yeah. So I was like, I'm not going to be the performing songwriter because everybody was going down to Nashville at the time. And Nashville was the place where as a craft songwriter, which I'm a craft songwriter, that would be naturally where I would fit in. You know, I loved, I love details in my songs. I love images in my songs. I paint pictures when I write songs. And so for me at the time, the country music scene was doing that style of music. So when I graduated, it was a natural thing for us to try Nashville. And I finished an EP and I was like, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to get a publishing deal. And 
I almost had a publishing deal like the first week I was there. And I thought, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. But, you know, they wanted a songwriter with a catalog. And I had the 10 songs that I had written at Berkeley. <laughs> That's it. I was so not, not ready for that. But it really kind of set in motion, like, I'm going to be a staff writer. I'm going to be a writer for others. And because of my background in advertising, the idea of writing for others was very appealing to me. I really, I understood the structure and thought I was going to do that. But then our life took a very interesting turn. Yes. And if you have listened to the two episodes where I talk about my life, there was a point where I talk about the crippling anxiety and depression and mental health crisis I went through about 20 years ago. And that happened when we were in Nashville. And at the same time, Susan became pregnant with our first child. <laughs> and we both had to make an adjustment, I think. And we moved back to Boston. And that's yeah. when you started teaching. So this is the funny thing. So I graduated from Berkeley, right? And my mentor, Pat Patterson, is like, I think you should teach songwriting at Berkeley. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm going to Nashville. <laughs> and then six months later, surprise, no, I'm not going to Nashville. I'm actually coming back to Boston. So I called Pat up and I was like, hey, remember that job you offered me? I would love that because I'm having a baby and we've just moved back to Boston and I'm really looking for some stability in my life. And so I started teaching um, right after our son was born. And that led me to a 20-year career as a teacher at Berkeley. So I want to talk about something that I think is very relevant and helpful. So as a songwriting teacher, you have mentored and helped, you know, what is it, like 200 students a semester, roughly, mm -hmm. for 20 years? Yeah. Take, the, take, take their first steps into creative writing. So teaching creativity is hard, and you're also dealing with, you know, a topic or something where your students are a lot more vulnerable than somebody who is, let's say, learning physics or math. Definitely. So if you were to step in the shoes of a manager or a senior leader who is coaching new, younger employees that are coming in and they may have some skills and they do that, like, what are some of the things that you learn in terms of being effective? Well, I think that the first semester that I was a teacher, I remember thinking that it was my job to win my students over. I had to convince them that I was valid and talented enough to be their teacher. So my first semester, I spent a lot of time kind of showing them my song examples because somehow I was going to kind of show them that I was worthy of being their teacher. And I had this epiphany that really all that they wanted to do was show me their skills and their creative. And so I think that once I realized that as a teacher, it wasn't my job to only put the energy outward, but to kind of create opportunities for them to contribute, the whole classroom dynamic changed for me. Even like the way that I taught, you know, I we have two hour increments that we teach in and I definitely... You know, in my first semester, I think they were mostly lecture-based with me talking a lot of the time. And I totally revamped that. And from kind of second semester on, even to now, I always try and 
teach kind of in little installments that allow them to, you know, it's more like they call it flipping the table or whatever, where, you know, you're really trying to encourage them to present to you. I think the other thing that I would say is I learned to kind of, I guess, emphasize their good points, to really try and encourage and not shut down when they were in that creative process. A teacher can have a very, very profound effect on a student, especially a student who is presenting something that is vulnerable and scary. Things that I say as the authority figure in that position can really damage somebody who is at the beginning of their career. And so I, I believe it's my job to nourish that, to nourish that creativity, and also make sure that they feel like they're heard. Great. So I want to keep on the tread on how to work together with people and move to another aspect of what you were doing in, in, in the early phases of your teaching career. Because even though we moved back, then you had a stretch when you were actually going down to Nashville and writing with other people. Sometimes people that you knew, sometimes people you were introduced to. So, you know, if you think about an example of, you know, the co-writing is a collaborative process by nature. Yeah. What are some of the elements that make a co-writing session successful? And if you think about like when you're getting into a small group dynamic, you're given a project where you need to collaborate with somebody. It's funny that you asked that because I think it's kind of similar to what I was saying as it relates to my students in the sense that one of the groundbreaking rules about co-writing is you never say no. You never, ever, ever shut someone down in the middle of their creative process. And I think that as a new writer, when I first started co-writing with people, you know, somebody would come up with an idea that you'd be like, in your head, you're like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my whole life. And, you know, when you're young and impressionable, you kind of want to say like, no, 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 let's not do that. Let's do this because I have a better idea. And I think that over time, I learned that you'd never say no, because sometimes that bad idea, if you actually follow it a little bit, maybe there's a great idea right beyond it. And I think that, you know, working as a co-writer there are kind of three different co-writing scenarios. The first one being where you get together with somebody and you're creating a song for another artist. And if that's the case, then you really need to do your due diligence and study that artist. Like what is the key that their song is in? What are some of the topics that they cover in their songs? What are some vocal inflections that they use? And you try and incorporate those into your song so that they will be more drawn to covering it. Then the second scenario is when you're working directly with an artist. And so your job as the co-writer is to be the architect of that person's song. And that means really listening, like really listening, listening to what, like the way that I start a co-write in that case always is I'll just be like, hey, what's going on? And as they're talking, I'm kind of typing what they're saying and then that usually leads to a good song because I've taken kind of their emotional, how they're feeling that day. And I'm already thinking about how it can translate into a song idea. In that case, when you're writing with an artist specifically, once again, you have to kind of submerge your own ego because it's not about you. It's about making sure that that artist feels listened to, they feel like the song represents who they are. And so I think of it 
as being more the architect of the song, where if an artist says, I want to build a castle, your job as the co-writer is to be like, okay, how many turrets do you want? Like, I'm building our castle and I'm helping you build that castle. And then the third scenario is one where, you know, you just get together with friends and then that's more of like a peer group co-writing session where different people take the lead at different times. But it really comes back to one, not shutting down someone's creative idea, even if it's in the beginning stages and you don't like it. And then the second thing is to really, really listen, really. And I, you know, I guess it's kind of obvious, but, you know, really be present in the moment and take in what they're saying and try and create something beautiful out of that. That is very true. And then obviously there's the, the scenario where you know that you're writing something that's going to be for you. Yeah, well, that's what I see more as like the peer thing where it's like, you know, we're just writing a song together. And I, I personally I know other people do, but I've never written where I'm like, we're going to write a song for my album. I, I've never done that. The songs that I've co-written with people, sometimes I've covered them. Sometimes other people have covered them, you know, the other co-writer. And I haven't never written with somebody with the idea of writing for my album. That just hasn't happened for me. All right. So since we're talking about writing for your album, yeah, uh, we're going to skip the Nashville co-writing era and then get to the point where I think you and I made one of the most irresponsible decisions. Oh, my God. <laughs> that one person can make, which was back in 2008, you had spent four or five years back and forth with Nashville, had a couple of cuts songs on album of minor independent artists. We had a couple of really close calls with really big name artists, yeah. having your song on hold for a year. And if I, and then we looked at each other. I'm like, well, I remember the day I told you, you know, you went to Berkeley because you wanted to be an artist. You have this enormous catalog of songs. Nobody's buying records anymore. Let's have you become an artist. <laughs> It's such a responsible thing to do. Yeah, I remember that. And I remember being like, oh my gosh, can I do this? And, you know, yeah. So career number three, I had all these songs that I had recorded for other country artists. And I was known for my really strong female song. So I write really, I think I really connect to what it is to being a woman. So I had all these like strong female songs that I had written for other people. And you, crazy person that I married, was like, let's release them. Why don't you release them on your own name? So that led to me, in my brief career, two albums and a half of being a pop country artist, which we gave it the good old college try. I charted on one of the lower music charts. The Music Row Country chart? Music Row Country yeah. charts. Two yep. songs charted on that chart. Ooh. And yep. I was a taking the world by storm and not being authentic to myself. I think that that is the most important thing, especially for this podcast. Cause I really, I was just like, what can I do to make you love me? Who can I be to make you love me? I'm going to wear a certain kind of clothes and I'm going to sing a certain kind of song and I'm going to speak with a Southern accent, even though I am from New Jersey. <laughs> And I'm not even from Southern New Jersey, like I'm from Northern New Jersey, but I'm going to try and be your, your pop country girl. And God, it was like wearing somebody else's underwear in the sense of like, I was really not being myself, but I was so desperate for recognition, validation, you know, in my career that 
I was willing to sell my soul to the devil to make that happen. And I think this is a really important part. I think in this podcast, I always ask people, was there a moment when something didn't go the way you wanted it? And I have to say for me personally, I learned a lot about how not to do things in those three years. I think my role as a manager was to tell you what to do so or what to do artistically so that people would like your music. And I learned the hard way that that's not the job of a manager. My job is to have you do your true music and find the people who may like it. And I think, you know, I remember the feeling that we had when the last single that we did in that arena did not do as well as we hoped. Yeah. And I remember sitting here with a record that we didn't like and nothing else to show for it. But still, it was still nominated for like best country album in the yes. in Europe. <laughs> so some people liked it. But yeah, I mean, I think that it was so interesting because I remember one time you were so helpful to me at that time in my life. So yes, you did say what you just said, but I'm going to say it again in a shorter way. And the fact that like your job was not to try and mold me into something that people would like. Your job was to allow me to be the creative person that I was and to find the people that would like what felt natural to me. And I think that giving me that freedom creatively was really helpful. The second thing is that I think re-examining like what does success mean? So, you know, I think I had wanted to take the world by storm. And when that didn't happen, it was hard but I also didn't want to be, I'll never forget you saying like, if you don't like this music, don't do this music because if you become famous or if you have any kind of success with this music, you're going to be singing this music for the rest of your life. And for me, that was like, oh my gosh, yeah, I, this is not, this is not me. I'm pretending to be somebody. And that's a lesson that I tell my students that I think is really a wonderful kind of life lesson that I learned. Like really being yourself is the most important thing because at the end of the day, you at least have, you know, your self-respect. <laughs> at the end of the day, you can be proud of what you've put out into the world. You can take that record and actually listen to it. Yeah. Even if you're the only person that's listened to it, you can listen to it. Yeah. As opposed to that pile of records that are in our basement that you don't even want to bring to your shows for me to sell. Because. Yeah. <laughs> but I also want to talk about when you made that decision and you started writing the first record that really was just written for yourself. Yeah. What was that like? Well, it was cool. I mean, I think like the album's called Haunted Heart. And what was interesting about it for me is that after having told my students for years that they need to quote unquote, write their truth. I was never writing my truth. I mean, a little bit of me was in all of my songs, obviously, but on Haunted Heart, I really kind of opened up the closet and let all the skeletons out <laughs> and, and really like explored kind of all of the nooks and crannies of my past and family relationships and it's interesting because now I listen to Haunted Heart and I really was kind of like, there are certain songs that there that are targeting injustices that I felt at the time that I really was like, I'm going to write a song about you. <laughs> you made me angry. I'm going to write a song about you. So it was a very kind of outwardly focused album, but I love the way it sounds. I love the fact that I didn't make any concessions 
It was like, if I wanted to put a diminished chord in the song, I was going to put a diminished chord in the song, even though it's a little complicated. It was amazing. And it's the kind of thing like once you truly become authentic creatively, you can never go back. You can never go back to that. And I think, you know, I still write pop country with artists in a co-writing format, but I will never go back to that. And I think what's interesting is that in some ways, your career as a performer, as an artist, became viable from that moment on because... Yeah, so funny, right? Two songs from Honda Dart were picked up at the New Folk Contest in Kerrville. Yeah. People started coming to listen to you in the more independent circuit, which is the circuit that it's available at our level. And that album and then the following album and the York you've done led to a couple of Boston Music Awards nomination, other awards, co-writing yeah. with artists that we were looking at as people that you admired. Yeah, I mean, it really, like, it was so funny because after trying to chase something down for so long, when I finally was like, screw it, I'm not going to do that. That was when people started paying attention. So, yeah, it's true. And it's so much more gratifying, I think. I'll never forget, like, one of the first songs I wrote that ended up on Haunted Heart was a song called Ingenue, which was about my grandmother. And I really felt like, oh my gosh, I'm revealing this important, I don't know, secret about who was my grandmother and not secret, like a big secret, but just secret in the sense of who, who was she? What was her life? I'd never written about my family like that. And that was a song that, you know, people would come up to me and be like, oh, I love that song about your grandmother. Where is that available? And I hadn't even recorded it yet. So that was pretty cool. And so I'm now going to go to the third rail in this conversation, <laughs> which is you and I have worked together as spouses for now 13 years. And oh my God. <laughs> Has it really been only 13? Sometimes it feels like 300. <laughs> it's actually 14. 14 years. Yeah, oh technically, because I think we had our conversation about having your first record in the spring of 2008. Yeah. We found the band, we had the rehearsal in July of 2008, and then recorded that record in the summer and released it in 2009. But there are many people who choose to go in business with their spouses mm. or are thinking about it. Yeah. And I can say we've had success because we're still married. Yes. And very happily married. But yes. what are, you know, if somebody has a business idea and they, they want to start their own business and they think like, you know, my spouse actually has expertise that would work in this business. What are the things that they should think about as they venture on this road? Well, I mean, I certainly think that there are many different work styles and many different communication styles and there isn't a right or a wrong way to do anything. And I think that you need to kind of figure that out. I think for us, I think the conflicts that have come up or the, I wouldn't even say conflicts because they're more like things that were issues that we had to kind of resolve as a working duo related to the fact that we kind of process information differently and you're very, very task oriented and I'm very, very emotionally driven. And so sometimes I think what would happen for us is I will ask you a question that has like an A or B answer. That's how you're hearing it. But I'm actually asking it because there's a whole mess of emotion behind it. And you're like, wait, I don't understand. It's just A or B. And I think that kind of realizing that 
it took some time. It took some time for me to realize, oh, okay, no, I need to kind of explain to him. You know, I'm very emotionally based and I, I need to explain to him when I come to him with a problem, I need to kind of explain the backstory behind why I'm having this indecision. And it usually relates to some form of insecurity. And we took a few years to kind of figure that, for me at least, it took a few years for me to figure that out. I also think that when we first started out, I was very immature from a standpoint of trying to be a performing artist. And so a lot of the the heavy work fell onto you. And I wouldn't be where I am today if it weren't for all the heavy lifting that you did. And I wish that I had kind of taken on more of that because I think that over time that led to resentment on your part because you were doing all the hard work. And I was doing the hard work too, but hard work in a different way. I was doing the creative. I was writing the songs, but you were doing all the technology. I mean, you were like the post office guy and the boss and the, you know, so I think that was an issue. So for two people that are starting out, I think that it's important to establish what your roles are, really, if you can. I mean, I know that we've kind of evolved, but I think if there had been a clear blueprint that would really play to our strengths, I think that that would have been important to have. And we didn't have it. We found our way to it, but I think that we didn't have that. And I think that that would have been something that would have helped somebody new who's starting out working with a spouse. Yeah, and I think like there's also the the nature of the manager artist work relationship is already a very complicated one because you know the manager is working in service of the artist, but as the person who's driving the business side, there are moments when the manager becomes the person who's driving, and there's not always a clear cut of who it is. Yeah, totally. You're always like, well, I'm just working for you. And I'm like, no, no, I'm working for you. Like, yeah, it definitely And I, and I think, you know, being, being in a situation where the structure of the role or the enterprise is such that, you know, one person is the chief technology officer and the other person is the CMO or, right. you know, that's certainly a, a something that makes things easier because there's a more clearly delineated way of that. But, yeah. you know, so we've talked about the difficult things. I want to talk about the rewards. Mm. Well, so one of the things, I mean, I can't tell you, there are so many, (laughs) there are so many examples of where I just had this support where you were there for me and you were there for me, not only in a manager capacity, but in a creative capacity that really was amazing. And, you know, I mean, I think even back to the, the album before this present one, which is called All Is Quiet. The album before that was called The Hammer and the Heart. And it was a double album. And I didn't know what to call it. I remember like sitting in the living room and I was like, what do I call it? It's like, and it had this song that I'd written called Work Hard, Love Harder. And you were you were just brainstorming with me and you're like, well, work, we could have like a, a hammer and then like, you know, work hard, love hard. It could be like a heart. And I was like, oh my God, The Hammer and the Heart. That's the album title. And it was so cool because we were in it together. We did that album together. And we are now at a point in our career and our life where our kids are have flown the nest. And to be able to share this passion that we both have for music and creativity together makes me very hopeful for our future as, as a married couple. Because unlike some couples who the 
woman is primarily the primary caretaker of the kids and or may have a career in a different field or may have a career in a different field. And then the man is doing his career or he's also at home with the kids, depending on what's going on. Or if you don't have kids, I mean, you know, two people working independently in different industries, it can be very hard to kind of find a common thread. Maintain a connection. And as you get older, we've been married for almost 30 years. And I think that we definitely scrap it out. Our relationship is vibrant and passionate and has, you know, it definitely has its bumps, but it also, I know I feel I'm in it with you. And I think that that is something that I treasure and something that I really value. Yeah. So I think that to summarize it, I think that for me, starting and building a work enterprise with your partner, spouse, romantic partner, whatever the nature of the relationship is, but it's not an easy process. It requires a tremendous amount of work and patience, but the payoff, if you are able to have success and make it through, for me, I wouldn't change anything because I think it really strengthened our marriage and got us in a place where, you know, we're entering the sort of this next phase, whatever it is, in a place that I don't think many people our age get into when they're, you know, when the kids leave home. And I think it's... I agree. Yeah. So... Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I am going to ask you. I love these questions. Yeah. You love these questions. I do. Yes. yes. So outside of music, which is your work, what is a personal interest that you have and how has that impacted your work? Well, so I love writing. I love writing everything. I love writing. Writing is always kind of the place where I go. It's where I feel the most kind of proficient, confident. And so for me, I love writing short stories. And that is something that as we go into this next phase of whatever life is going to lead me, I, I'd really like to do some more creative writing. So I love creative writing. Great. And then what is an expression or a jargon expression that drives you crazy and why? Oh, well, honey, can we just unpack this for a minute? I hate that expression. I hate that expression. Oh my God. And the worst part is that like, it's a good expression. Cause it's like, you know, we have something that we haven't discussed. Let's discuss it. But the idea of like, you know, initially when I heard that, I was like, that's a really cool thing. The idea of like unpacking, thinking of it in a metaphor sense of like a suitcase that we unzip and take out all whatever clothing discussions we have to do. But it's been so overused and it, it's, I just hate it. Every time I hear it, I hate it. <laughs> all right. Final question, food for your body or food for your soul. So what is either a recipe or book, song, yes. movie? So I was thinking about that and going back to kind of my love of short stories. The reason why I love short stories is because I can read one before I go to sleep at night and I f feel this sense of like finished, I finished something before I can go to sleep. And I am a huge uh, fan of the Great American Short Story Collection, which you, Dino, give to me every year. So I have like 30 years of great American short story collections. But what I've been doing recently is when I find a story that I really like, I then, in the same way that when I find an artist that I really like, I'll usually try and find who their heroes were and listen to them and kind of go back. I'm doing that with liter literature, where if I find a short story author that I like, 
I will then start reading all of the work of that short story author. And that led me to really dive deep into a writer by the name of Joyce Carol Oates. And I really love her short stories. I think they're just wonderful. And she's a very um, prolific writer. So I've been really enjoying a lot of her work. Okay. Thank you very much. We've finished our interview. Yay, we did it. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Dino. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please tell a friend who may enjoy it that they should listen to it. And if you like the show, please tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to us on your favorite listening platform so that when we release new episodes, you don't miss them. And if you listen to a platform like Apple Podcasts or Good Pods that allows you to leave reviews and ratings, please leave us a really good rating or a review. Now that you've heard from Susan herself, stick around because I'm going to play one of her songs at the end of these credits. And if you want to find more about her, her site is susanmusic.com and you can follow her on Instagram at susanccmusic and you can buy her music at susanonbandcamp.com. You can find me online at al4ep.com with the number four and you can email me at dino at al4ep.com. On Twitter and Instagram, please look for at al4edp and give us a follow. And you can also follow the show on Facebook, Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and the great Jesse Williams on bass. And now, as promised, here's a song by Susan, is a song that she mentioned in the podcast, Ingenue, from her album Haunted Heart.
But God took him early Sorrow took her heart They waltz together now